You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture and news you definitely missed this week. We're your hosts, Nina Bhattacharya and Sheila Lal. This week, we're talking to Anjal, a choreographer, composer, writer, and performer who founded the innovative Soham Dance Space in Chicago and is currently a Fulbright Scholar based in Berlin, Germany. Since I was first introduced to Anjal and her work 10 years ago, I've seen her explore the versatility of Bharatanatyam dance and the possibility it can create for both students, audiences, and social justice within the South Asia diaspora at large. We had a great conversation that I can't wait to share with you. Let's get started. I had always heard about from people who I really respect, like one of my favorite college professors and from one of my favorite creative friends in Chicago and, and from various people who I just, whose opinion I always, intri- always intrigues me, um, that Berlin is just in a category of its own. On another level, mm-hmm. creatively, everyone would always just describe it as such a creative city. It's like such a creative city. And it's like, what does that mean? I don't, but obviously, like, it didn't matter what it meant to, like, to me, it was like, oh, that's what I want. I want a really, mm-hmm. like, highly creative city. I want to be in an environment that is um, always engaged in that kind of energy of the creative process. And so I was intrigued by Berlin, primarily for that, for that initial reason. But then I was also very much, like, following and intrigued by the, the political dynamic of of just of Germany, past, present, future. I mean, one thing is obviously the refugee crisis and Germany being a recipient of many, many, many refugees. And from the outside, from afar, it always seemed like, okay, well, this is a very refugee-friendly place. Maybe it's a very immigrant-friendly place. Maybe it's just a very international place. And the politics that were interesting to me, again, from afar, like mm-hmm. I was intrigued by this like openness to outsiders. I think the other part of it that I think about a lot just being in the U.S. is just sort of like how countries and communities grapple with their own history and Mm. how they come to terms with their own history. And I think in the U.S., in so many ways, it feels like we are a country that is really comfortable denying our own past Mm -hmm. um, or undermining the significance of it or pretending that it's just in the past and doesn't continue to live on. Again, from afar, everything I had heard about Germany seemed like it was different, right? Like the way in which they dealt with or came to terms with a very recent history was one of, was one that was about like facing it, acknowledging it, learning from it, healing from it, and then like remembering it very, very consciously and constantly and and committing to a different like to different ideals. So, so I mean, I think what I'm trying to do is, is just say, like, let's look at this creative community. And I can do it, one, as, like, an artist myself, because here I am, I'm an artist. I can, like, throw myself into this Berlin context, continue to do my work. 
and just like, what does that mean for me as an artist? You know, like, how do I grow? What opportunities am I able to find? What kind of conversations or collaborations am I able to dig up? Like, or just, you know, so much of my practice is solo. So how, how does my solo practice become informed or inspired by what I encounter here, you know, in the kinds of spaces I get to navigate here as an, as an artist. So part of what I'm doing is just being an artist in Berlin. And then the other part of it is, is a lot more sort of academic and cerebral, I suppose, like pondering all these things from, and and reading about them and, and, and hopefully eventually getting around to interviewing more people about their experiences. But, you know, it's like, it's a lot to do. It's a lot to do in a short period of time. I think I felt the same way when I was in Indonesia. And it's like, by the end of the year, I was like, cool, year one. Uh, I mean, I feel like now I can really teach a class, but it's like, that's the juncture at which I'm leaving. Or like, I have connections in my community, but like, now I have to leave because the year is over. Totally. And it's, it's like a big part of my anxiety here that I, I wish I could figure out, um, Mm -hmm. is, is just that is like, is like, Oh, it's only a year. It's only a year. It's only a year. And then like feeling the the burden of how that affects your approach to everything. I like kind of want to somehow emancipate myself from that. Like (laughs) I'm just in like a timeless Space, space and place and like just go at it like organically like don't overthink this but yeah I also know that it's a ongoing challenge for me because I think the way my my mind works is so in it's like very interested in like intersections and how like so many different things tie together I just like I love the meeting point of lots of different lines of thought and I think that that always tends to get me involved in in things that are just like the juggle. I feel like the messy questions, the like these intersections are the ones that are the most timely, I guess. I, mm. I, I feel like a lot of the the things that you're talking about are starting starting to get at things that are the most important. I feel like nothing is really truly a cut and dry issue, right? The rational decision maker. I'm like that yeah. person doesn't exist. It's funny that you say that because so I just want to talk by a guy who wrote this book called Emotional Cities, comparing Berlin and Cairo mm-hmm. in, like, like 1870 to 1910 or something. But, like, the whole premise of this book was was about how emotions very much shape how people, like, shape a city. And also a city very much shapes people's emotions. And, like, and, and emotions are very primary drivers in everything we do. That's just, like, the complete opposite premise, right? Yeah, it, and it can't be overlooked, and it shouldn't be overlooked, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I just went to another talk yesterday. You know, it was it was a philosopher talking about how emotion, how emotion is very much manifest physiological in our bot physiologically in our body. Which, yeah, I mean that doesn't sound like a very novel thought, but he he was taking that to mean that like you yeah you can't separate right like our embodied experience from our emotion. And I just think it's so important to have these conversations that put feelings and emotions like kind of front and center. So I think all of that's really great. That's, I mean, I feel like the last few weeks in the U.S. has been an indication of what happens when uh, masculinity is encouraged to not put feelings front and center. Mm. Um, That's something I've been thinking a lot about in terms of just uh, sexual assault and violence. And just that we don't, both in terms of, 
uh, like men who have experienced it, but also men who have perpetrated it. Um, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of space in like I feel American conceptions of what it means to be a man to allow yeah. for feeling and for like healthy actual processing of feeling. And I haven't quite flushed out like a real thought around it, but it feels like it's it's just missing. Yeah, totally. You know, like there's there's this idea of like raising the feminist son as as being you know an effort of many many things, but like one of those things is is about is about feeling. And I just yeah, I think that there's a lot to explore there. How is it? What is it like to witness what's happening in the United States from afar? So what happened in Charlottesville was followed with an article, and I forgot the source of the article, but it was it was basically like, what does Charlottesville look like from Berlin? <laughs> um, and so I think that like that's like definitely a, a framework of thinking about things all the time. Like, what does this look like relative to where I'm at, you know, mm-hmm. or informed by like the perspectives and the preoccupations of everybody right here or the values of everyone right here? And yeah, it's very, very interesting. I mean, I think obviously in so many ways, it's like ridiculous from afar. It just looks even more ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, But then at the same time, and maybe this is like a slightly different tangent, but like I have interestingly, surprisingly come to appreciate so much about the U.S. so quickly from being in Germany, which I actually didn't think I was going to be the case. Um, I I really thought that it was going to be like, oh, like hanging my head in shame, you know, um, for a really long time, like walking about this, like, yeah, this enlightened space. And this is of course being very hyperbolic and idealistic about where I'm at, but cause it's not, it's not that way at all. And I think, but like realizing the flaws of, of a society that I think I also admire in many ways, um, his, his really helped me from afar to like appreciate the discourse that happens in the U S even though, unfortunately, we have to have certain discourses because of a very like terrible, terrifying situation. Um, but I, I think I appreciate it. I mean, I think race is, is in particular one of those things and, and just identity, the way, the way those conversations are had in the U S or at least the way there's space for it. Obviously from afar, I, I also sometimes feel like I, I kind of get a little bit why the U S is sort of this really interesting experiment in terms of society. I want to rewind to like how you were introduced to dance. Mm -hmm. What allowed you or enabled you to like open your own studio? Now I'm just like, now that I am hearing like present day Angel, you know, (laughs) like being an artist in Berlin and experiencing the world in a particular way, I want to hear what like, I want to hear everything that came before it that led you, that shaped you and allowed you to be the artist that you are right now. But how did you, how were you introduced to dance? I was introduced to dance because my mom wanted to learn dance. My mom always took an interest in dance. I never got to learn it and then came to the States and then, you know, had two daughters and then her, you know, her older daughter didn't want to, wasn't really into it. Um, and I was too young. And so then my mom was like, well, I'm still into it. And so she decided to take a butt of the class. 
just very much like that's what's going to hold me back. I'm, you know, a grown woman and I'm going to take this class with a bunch of young kids because I want to learn about the document. So she did that. I don't really remember the time frame, but I think very quickly, like maybe I showed some interest and my mom would like teach me some moves at home. And then one day was basically, you know, like brought me to my teacher and was like, I was like, you, you think she could join this class? So then I joined my mom's class um, and my mom and I were in this class together for a little while. And then that's kind of how I was introduced to it. Yeah. What was it like growing up dancing? Did you, was it something you've always felt from the beginning that it's an integral part of your life or did you get to that meaning later on in your career as a dancer? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting how kids experience like what's important to them. I, I mean, obviously I think I was very, I, I didn't think much about it, but I danced and I danced like very happily for a very long time, you know? And I mean, I remember just like in kindergarten, you know, when you just, you have PM, like I, I only went to kindergarten for half the day and the other half of the day I was at home with my grandpa, like turning on the radio and just like bouncing around the living room, you know? So like from things like that to like, you know, I, lots of memories of vacation of just like roaming around, jumping up and down racks and just like always like kind of moving and, and prancing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think like that kind of form of expression, uh, was probably constant. And then with, with regards to like the, the formal experience of, of learning dance. Um, yeah, I, I just like it, my memory of it when I was younger was that my brain wasn't so involved. I was just like moving about, you know, and I, and it felt, you know, it felt like, you know, a water droplet in an ocean of water. Like I just kind of felt, it felt very natural and I didn't question it and I didn't think about it. Um, and I think that's how it was for me f- for a pretty long time. Yeah. Then what was it like when you um, finishing high school and then you're taking the next step? Yeah. It's so interesting because as cognizance sets in, like in high school and onwards, it became very clear to me that this was something I I loved and that I was prioritizing mm-hmm. and that I was being more intentional about. And I, I think also I was fortunate to have supportive parents that wanted me to pursue or was yeah. were happy to allow me to pursue things. I was in a position to sort of like seek out extra opportunities all the time, you know, and like be involved in, in extra performances all the time. Um, and then in college, it, college was an interesting crisis of, of what the heck should I do with my life. Uh-huh. Um, and I took it very, very hard and very, very seriously. And you know, when I finally arrived at this this point of like, oh, I, I really want like the arts and the performing arts to be somewhat central. So what did you um, think you were going, like what, going into college, like what, did you have like a specific major, like? I was delightfully undecided, declared that's awesome. undecided. That's awesome. More people need to be more undecided. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was very, I declared my undecidedness officially on like all the paperwork. Um, and... I, yeah, I just, I have a lot of interests. And so I was in the College of Arts and Sciences for a long time and just doing, you know, dabbled in everything really. But like, I I was considering everything from like, you know, metropolitan studies, sociology, to history, to like architecture, to like philosophy and math. And like, I was really curious about everything genuinely. And I think the more I dove in, the more I, I found, uh, I, 
I decided to focus on the social sciences. I was about to be a sociology major until then eventually I like changed my mind again and I decided to go into the food studies department. Um, so NYU has a pretty pioneering food studies program where Mary Nessel, um, you know, thought there this book called Food Politics uh, kind of set up shop. And she, and, and the department is really appealing to me because it's so interdisciplinary. And like, yeah. I just love everything that's interdisciplinary. Like, let's talk about the entire world and every aspect of it through the lens of food. Um, kind of right around that same time, I was like, shoot, I think I want to do music or dance. And I pondered how to do that and realized that like, I'm not going to like figure that out in a college setting anytime mm-hmm. soon. So I followed through with the regular bachelors and like decided right after college to somehow find a way to jump in to the arts. What did that look like? You were in India for some time, right? Towards the end of my college, uh, maybe my senior year of college, I decided to do three solo performances in India um, with my guru and and a live orchestra. Um, the the music and dance festival in Chennai is is really huge, and it, it's often considered a, a significant place to go and perform yeah. if you have some amount of seriousness, right? To go and have that experience is what I did, of course. For me, that that experience was very much sort of like, okay, I don't know how to do this, but I like want to commit to a more serious pursuit of it. Continue to train, continue to polish my my work and my material, and grow and present and perform, and and that was in terms of time, that wasn't a long time. It was like it was only probably a few weeks in India. Um, but it was also an interesting turning point for me because I also learned perhaps how I didn't want to pursue my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that being the end of college and me sort of like scratching my head after I graduated about what I want to do. Um, a lot of what I wanted to do was shaped by also what I didn't want to do. And that was a launch pad into this so what did you just discover that you didn't want to do? So at this time, like you're doing Bharatanatyam and you're doing m- more traditional pieces. I hate to use the phrase pure Bharatanatyam because I don't even know what that means. Um, mm-hmm. But like you're doing a societally accepted version of Bharatanatyam, <laughs> performing sure. specific pieces that people have, are like are either familiar with the music, the kind of the language of expression that's being shared. Um, mm-hmm. and as someone who's watched your more recent expressions, like at the Smithsonian, etc., that mm-hmm. the, the language is there, like the, the language of movement is there, but obviously it's not, it's too, um, the other aesthetics of the dance are slightly different than what someone traditionally conceives of as Bharatanatyam. So I just also want to walk through that a little bit. Like, sure. Was what did you discover you didn't want to do, and then how did you decide? I think it takes a lot of courage for a dancer in a South Asian dance tradition to um, to kind of forge ahead on one's own in some ways, um, mm-hmm. because there is a lot of emphasis on. Uh, schools of dance there's a lot of emphasis on like the teacher-student relationship and how um, specific movements are communicated Mm -hmm. through a lineage in some ways (sighs) I take a deep breath in to like give my tongue a moment to warm up like because I think it's not that it's um, a lot of ground to cover like I have no no problem talking about all this stuff it's that it's like it's very emotional, really. Mm. Like the whole experience of 
um, going through this experience, training as a classical Bharatanatyam dancer, um, and and then coming to a point where you decide that you want to make that your own and you want to give even more of yourself to it and and then you have to decide like what matters to you and what doesn't the question of like what did i not want to do i think that there were so many aspects of the experience that seemed to require me to be very submissive um, and very deferent to a form of what felt like an arbitrary hierarchy sort of undermining of my own creative ability. And I just found that to be a toxic situation. So I think a lot of what I did not want to do was to feed into that or to continue to give that importance. I think this, this very much shapes a lot of the ways in which I teach Mm. um, in terms of really wanting to teach the dance form, not with, the intention that people master a very specific defined form and that mastery is like the end all and be all mastering a technique is very important. Um, but for me, what's most important is that people f- develop their creative capacities and develop their autonomy and their their ability to feel empowered to do and make and imagine however they want. And that is so important to me. And that is not the experience that I had. That's certainly a lot of how I teach, but it's also, for me, it's like, well, I have to go kind of out on a limb to sort of, to stay in touch with that creative flame inside of me and to not give importance to what sometimes felt like somebody's ego. So that was, that's part of it. (laughs) Um, Can't understate it, although I, I, is that like certain aspects of my dance experience were, somewhat demoralizing and and I think a lot of what I want dance to be for myself as an artist and for anyone else who I interact with is is not that is like one where it's it's inspiring and it's liberating and it's and it allows you to be who you are um rather than um sort of a form of like puppetry where you have to sort of put your own voice away in service of some larger agenda so anyways that's a little abstract but um the industry or the community of Bharatanatyam the infrastructure is very tied to Chennai there's so much richness out there and there's so much to be appreciated out there I think I take issue with giving a too much importance to that as if one sort of individual artistic career or story has to sort of come from that sort of launching point I'm not, I don't come from a South Indian Tamil speaking family. And so, and yet I was taught the form, right? And I loved the form. And I, I always thought that there was a very interesting, it, it's really hurtful, right? To have someone say to you or to imply or to get, you know, subliminal messaging that like, that this thing that you were taught that you also paid a lot of money for over the years to learn is also not a thing that you have the right to like claim consider to claim to claim as your own and to mm-hmm. to to use and to bore it feels like a weird kind of exploitation to like teach a bunch of non Tamil speaking people Bharatanatyam in order to sort of you know build your empire and, and and make your money and then years down the road be like oh but like the seven of you or the ten of you or the hundreds of you like this isn't really your thing that, no I again, can empathize I with that I I mean 
as someone mm-hmm. who like learned Bharatanatyam growing up and who is not. I mean, it's, it's also an interesting dynamic for like thinking about how the diaspora works and like how that exactly. grew yeah. in the U.S., like which art forms got precedence at different points as more Indian American, like more Indians moved to the United States. Because like, yeah. if I wanted to learn dance, it was, Bharatanatyam was really the only option because my guru at that time was she wasn't teaching Kathak. And also Kathak had a lot of like historical baggage on it because of the British and just how it evolved historically. Yeah, to your point that there's all different types of people learning Bharatanatyam who were exposed to it, who then don't mm-hmm. get to claim it as their own um, because of kind of like the political structure that surrounds yeah. Chennai and the not just dance but also the music economy mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <sighs> and I don't actually see it the way some people see it learning Bharatanatyam in the states as an Indian American like is you know me learning an Indian dance form mm-hmm. first and foremost and I feel like that's okay. To me, what I see Bharatanatyam is primarily is a classical dance form with a lot to it, with a lot of dimension and rigor. And it's an art form. It's an art form. And if it's an art form, it means anybody can learn it. And if and anybody can grow from it. And anybody can like have this experience of self-discovery through it. Mm-hmm. And it can inform, inform you and have all the benefits that any sort of classical art might have. Um, and that is like the main takeaway and that is the ma- the main thing that it gives and and i think like the way i the way i teach and like my sort of vision for how it's taught is is one where it's like this is yours like very much the way a painter can take 10 different colors of paint and do whatever they want with that paint i i just really believe that this art form lends itself in the same exact way it's this palette of colors it's this box of tools and like you can make with it what you want and I I think that that's what's beautiful about the art form I think that the art form has totally that potential it's undermining the art and sort of belittling like the significance I think it can have mm-hmm. um, for many 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 different people when when that's what you don't do with us when you when, when that's why you don't frame it um, when was the first time you felt like you were expressing your own voice through dance yeah, that's a good question. There were probably some some pieces that I choreographed in high school. There's a Hindi song called Pinjareke Panchi. No, actually, what's the song that I'm thinking of? I'm having a brain freeze. But there were a few pieces that I choreographed that were actually to, to old, like Hindi oldies in particular. And they were, um, and I'm really upset with myself that I'm not remembering this name. It's going to have to come back to me, but, but I feel like those were, those were moments when I choreographed a piece from scratch and, and, you know, like here was the music and, and I applied 100%, you know, if we have to talk about it that way, but at the Natsum technique, um, but very much found something that connected with me and, and I, you know, I put it all together and I performed it and it was, it was very heartfelt. It felt very heartfelt. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of those experiences happened outside of my formal, the structure of my formal yeah. dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in college, I also choreographed stuff. You know, I did a piece to, um, it was a Dave Matthews song that I combined with some stuff. And just like music that, whose soul and spirit I really connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and finding a way to, again, like apply my technical 
background, my vocabulary um, to expressing these things in a way that felt really authentic and natural. Um, I don't know. Those might be some of the some of the moments, some of like the isolated moments. Those are those are out of this context of like trying to be a professional artist. Yeah, no, that's... you know, like trying to like, which is a whole other conversation about what that even means. Now, if I think about my artistic voice or finding my voice, I think like, gosh, it's taken me a long time to find it. <laughs> you know, like I kind of look back and also feel like, oh, there was a lot of taking them to Shetty and like making my way like through the forest and figuring out where my voice is. You said you wouldn't be who you are if you didn't have that machete in the jungle Absolutely. experience. Yeah, like thinking about those earlier moments, it feels like, oh, those were like these like little sweet moments that are really like nice to remember. But then thinking about now and the journey and, and realizing that also it takes a lot of time to figure out what you're trying to figure out Mm -hmm. through your art, you know? And I think that maybe it was a year or so ago. Yeah. Pretty much a year ago where I like walked away from a performance and I was like, Oh, I, I think I get it. I think I get what my voice is or what I'm after or what is like a recurring quality of my work. Um, in a way that you can only start to understand after you've been dabbling for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's cool because it's it's deep. It's a deep and long walk. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you're there. Thank you. You just recently had your first students complete their Arangetram performance. Yeah. I'm, being a teacher was, has been so much part of your identity for a long time now. Mm. What was that like? And, like, what was an Arangetram performance to you or, like, to them? Like, what were the emotions that you were experiencing as a teacher and as a dancer? As, I mean, yeah, we haven't really talked about Soham at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. I think, like, giving an Arangetram was awesome. It was definitely a gift of an experience. I think in many ways through my teaching, I have somewhat been focused on crafting my own approach to teaching and, and getting in touch with my own values as a teacher. And that was very much a part of this Arangetram, too, is, like, what's important to me in this experience and what do I want my students to value? Because I also think that the Arangetram is is unfortunately, like, sort of a commoditized, commercialized production, and that's odd, and I don't want that to be how my students understand mm-hmm. this. Um, at the same time, like, I have to acknowledge that that this is also seen as, like, a cultural rite of passage for a lot of families mm-hmm. in a way that that maybe doesn't completely, like, align with how I like where I see the significance of the Arangetram because it's it's a it's a family experience right and so you have to respect that role that it plays in the life of the family while also trying to retain and emphasize for your students specifically like this is what this is about um you know certainly putting yourself into a very rigorous and disciplined experience of training and performing and and connecting with an audience perhaps for the first time in such a long and extensive way and hopefully in the process equipping yourself with the tools and 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 the understanding of this art form and its and its technique and its its sort of potential um but also hopefully discovering for yourself what it is that you love about self-expression as a teacher it's very much a part of like defining what this is for you as a teacher and letting your students understand that but at the same time it very much inevitably connected me so deeply and so emotionally to sort of all of my gurus and all of my 
kind of creative predecessors and, and sort of like the lineage before me. And like, it very much made me feel like there was this knowledge flowing from all these sources through me to my students. And I can't understate how significant that experience is. It's awesome to be able to share your passion with somebody else. And I think only when you get students who want to take, take their training to this level, do you perhaps have a chance to be even more unabashed about like how much you love this. I think I walked away with a satisfaction that there's like an exchange of love, but finding love in your process. I feel like in many ways I was like a big time underdog and I certainly didn't do it for the sake of credibility, but it, it absolutely gives some level of credibility to people from the outside looking in being like, what's this young person doing teaching Bharatanatyam and la la la, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and I think it, it certainly is like, yeah, I'm serious. And, um, <laughs> and my students kick butt. So that's amazing. Back off. <laughs> like in the yeah. pictures I saw, like everyone was just glowing and like, it's, it seems like it was a special experience for everyone involved. It was, it was super, it was super special. What did Soham as a physical space mean to you? Because I mean, part of your shift to Berlin is having to close a space that, well, okay, just to remind, I met you in 2009. And and it's not just an institution as like Soham as a dance school, but it's also was a physical room in which people danced. And it was also a room where people had satsang and like, you know, sat together and had conversations. And I founded Soham in 2007. So it is exactly a decade. I found this particular space for the first couple of years, it was sort of like teaching here and there. But in 2009, July, I found this space on Damon Avenue in Chicago. And it was very important to me to have a space to have an environment that I could design and, you know, an atmosphere that you can sort of curate and cultivate and breathe life into. I think the energy of the space is palpable. Building a space was so important to me. I used to live there. It was like a live workspace for a while. And then like so many events, so many classes and so much, so much reflection, so much post-class, like sitting on the floor, basking in the glow of a wonderful class that just happened that, you know, like the, the powerful moments of teaching that you can be like, that like that really focused your mind on like any other activity I've ever experienced. I named my org Soham Dance Space, just very much in tune with this idea that like, I think environments are so important mm-hmm. and the space you give for things, for activities, but even the space you give for your thoughts and your own growth. Space is such an important thing, such a sacred thing. I I believe very strongly that the future of Soham will also have a space. Like to me, that's such an important part of the vision. Sheila here. If you want to know more about Anjul, check out our website at www.anjulchande.com. That's A-N-J-A-L. C-H-A-N-D-E. Unfortunately, the interview was a little too long for us to put all of it up at once, but we were really excited that we got to speak to her and really encourage you to go to her website. You can learn about her Fulbright. You can learn about the project that she did at the Smithsonian and the way that she uses intersectionality and social uh, movements in her own dance. Again, thank you so much, Anjul, for speaking to us. As always, you can find us on the internet at Facebook, on Twitter, on SoundCloud and on our website, almiraradiohour.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find us as well. We're a small podcast and we want to make sure that we are heard in this cacophony of the podcasting world.